Tonight's show is brought to you by two people who are not from Southern Illinois, but their editor is. I, Sarah Voorhees Wendell, have done my best to cut around the mispronunciations that us Southern Illinoisans know. That said, there were a couple that had to stay as is. If you know, you know. And don't judge the guys. If I wasn't from the area, I probably wouldn't know either. Also, go Salukis. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Skylight Frame, Wondrium, Page One Books, Cerebral, Stamps.com, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In 1973, local news cycles were being dominated by the Vietnam War and the Watergate break-in from the prior year. The man who invented cellular technology made the first handheld cellular phone call in April of that year. Also in April of 73, actors Adrian Brody and Adam Scott were both born, and Pioneer 11 was launched on a journey to study our solar system. Its last transmission was 27 years ago, but in about 4 million years, it will carry its metal plaque with a message from humanity to the cosmos close to the star Lambda Aquila. 1973 also saw a spate of nuclear tests at the Nevada test site, 19 that year alone. One of them actually took place on April 25th, a little over 1,800 miles away on that same day in a quiet little town in southeastern Illinois called Enfield. Something very unusual was unfolding. Enfield is what folks in Scott's home state might say is not really a town, but more of a wide spot in the road. Home, at the time, to maybe six or 700 people, it was a quiet place. But at 10 p.m. on April 25th, a 50-year-old disabled World War II veteran named Henry McDaniel heard a scratching sound at his front door. He took a gun and a flashlight to investigate. And on that windy night, between a couple of bushes in front of his house, he saw a strange creature that bore no resemblance to anything he'd ever encountered before in his life. A creature now referred to as the Enfield Monster. McDaniel said, it had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms coming out of its breast area, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half to five feet tall and was grayish colored. It was trying to get into the house. He fired at it several times, hitting it at least once, at which point it let out a hissing sound, not unlike that of a cottonmouth viper, before it bounded away, covering 75 feet of distance with just three jumps. McDaniel was portrayed in the press as eccentric and unreliable, but the details of this legend have so much more to offer when you're not dismissive of it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Burgess. If they do find it, they will find more than one, and they won't be from this planet, I can tell you that. Henry Barney McDaniel, Eyewitness. Join us tonight as we introduce you to the enigmatic infield monster. back. 
Uh, that we are, folks. Wait, what were you doing there? What was that voice? Uh, I feel like we've been recording for three hours already, and we've not even got to the show content <laughs> part of the <laughs> well, recording. Well, that's because we have to rehearse. We had to do our rehearse. I see. Okay, right. I'm already exhausted, but let's keep pressing on. Crack on, my friend. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's three hours later for me, I man. I'm, I'm in it to win it tonight. I know, but you're you're on fire, my friend. Uh, yeah, I think I, you're, you are you are wound up and ready to go. Uh, wound up and ready to go. Well, I, I, you know what? I feel like uh, covering Chuck Fort has really helped me get recentered. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's nice to know that we're standing on his shoulders and he cleared the path for folks like us. And you know what? Really, nobody called him Chuck or or Chick. Oh, oh that's right. His, his nickname was Toddy, I think. Well, as a child, yeah, because, you know, his dad was Charles Nelson. So it was oh, two, that's right. two Chucks in the family. So he was Toddy. Yeah. It was great getting to know him better. Of course, we're joking around here, but he is legit a serious inspiration for me anyway. Well, yes, for a lot of us listening, even if you may not know it. And guess what? We should all know more about our inspirations, right? Plus tonight's Tom. Topic is, you could say, classic Fortian. It's classic Fortian. That's right. It's right up his alley. A strange cryptid with some scientific study behind it. Uh, but first, a couple of very quick notes here for housekeeping. Most important of which is that the main show is about to be dark for two weeks. Uh, when you're bi-weekly like we are, these breaks occur naturally as you lay out the calendar for the year. But that's okay because sometimes we need the breaks too. <laughs> Oh my goodness, don't we know it. Well, we will still be producing our Patreon-exclusive show, The Astonishing Junk Drawer, and since there are two dark weeks of the main show, that means there will be two junk drawer shows in a row over at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. So yeah, if you want to hear us year-round, and who doesn't, frankly, uh, just join our other Patreons over there for that. Uh, yeah, nobody. There's most people in my family don't. Uh, no, my nobody I know. Like nobody I really know. They don't listen yeah. at all. No. Uh, listen, we don't <laughs> usually do shout outs uh, just because that can unleash a torrent of requests that can be difficult to handle. Sure. But we did get an email in a few weeks ago that we wanted to share parts of because it, it matches our sentiment about some current world events. Yeah, well, this email came in from Jules just a few weeks ago, and it was a shout out request, but not for the person themselves or someone close to them, but something larger. And I'll share an excerpt from it here. Hi there. I love the podcast. The topics are indeed astonishing, and I appreciate the room you leave for skeptical analysis as opposed to total bias. It's far from the programs that make me laugh until it becomes too uncomfortable to continue on with hearing the nonsensical ignorance. I would like to request a big shout-out to all of Ukraine and friends. Although they probably won't hear it, I hope they know that the world is pulling for them, and they have proven to be the bravest of people in the face of such awful cruelty and hate. They should know they're in our thoughts, and they must keep their positivity as it seems to have made a significant impact. The West may need a reminder to never take for granted the fact that we live our lives in total freedom and that we should try harder to unite, especially here in the U.S. Thanks for all of the content that you clearly spend a ton of time on for all of our curious minds. Keep on keeping on, and we will keep listening. So, Jules, very well put, and thank you so much for sending that in, and yes, we have great admiration for the people of Ukraine in the face of the Russian invasion, and we sincerely hope that in the long run, they will prevail. If you'd like to help Ukraine out, a charity that we like, reviewed by CharityWatch.org, is called CARE. Charity Watch gives them an A rating and approval in the 90% after reviewing their IRS Form 990, which provides transparency on where the funding is going so you know it will get to those in need. Here's an excerpt on their mission. Care USA plans to reach 4 million people with a focus on women and girls affected by the war in Ukraine. The most acute critical needs as identified by Care's partner organization, People in Need, or PIN, 
first responder teams in Ukraine, as well as on border crossing points, are multi-sectoral, ranging from food, water, hygiene items, key non-food items such as mattresses, sleeping bags, and blankets, psychosocial support and protection, and sanitation facilities at the overcrowded border crossing areas. Priority response at the moment is to provide life-saving humanitarian assistance in Ukraine, in areas affected by military escalation, where millions of people are at risk of loss of life, injury, and without access to basic services such as food, water, sanitation, and health care. Go to care.org, that's C-A-R-E dot org, and give now to help with this mission and give confidently knowing that your donation will get to those in need in Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. All right, it's time to get started with tonight's show. And as we dive in here, we wanted to give special thanks to our friends in the Astonishing Research Corps who really pitched in on tonight's topic of the infield monster and other neighboring monsters, as you'll hear. This includes, but is not limited to, Alex, Jen, Lauren, and Mike. Thanks so much for helping us dig up some solid info on this story. Yes, absolutely. Big thanks to the ARC as always. So without further ado, let's dive in here. What is the Enfield monster? Shall we have an overview? Yeah, I don't know. Do we? Oh, I okay. Yeah, I was waiting overview. for you to. I didn't I bring the direct overview. question to you. Not Am I the doing listeners. the overview, or are you doing the overview? I will do the. Re- I will do the overview. I'm just okay. asking if you were ready it. for it. Okay. Yes, I'm ready. Well, all right. Well, this story is actually known by two titles, generally known as uh, the case of the Enfield Monster or the Enfield Horror, hmm. because there was some horror involved. This is not. The story of the Enfield poltergeist in England. And no, we will not have a segment where we talk about how horrible Ed and Lorraine Warren were. <laughs> I had to make that clear because you know pe- people are going to ask. Yes, yeah. that's why didn't you bring that up? Why didn't you say that? This is not in England. This is in the Midwest, in the U.S. So get ready for that. Well, there's one great source that's close to our hearts and we didn't even know it yet. In the Ark, our good friend Mike Kay... Well, of course, he, he has a tremendous knowledge of all this kind of stuff and folklore and... and uh, yeah, he's written really, books on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, he had Lauren Coleman's book, Bigfoot, The True Story of Apes in America from Paraview Pocket Books uh, way back in 2003. Yeah, that's a classic. I don't have that book. I, I wish I had it. It's, it comes up all the time. Speaking of Fort earlier, it's the kind of book that we wish we had as kids and... It is the kind of book that, like with Fort's stories, we all wish we had access to because it's just one after the other. There's these great anecdotes. We certainly trust all of his research and his infield investigations. So again, this Enfield story pops up in his book, and we will, of course, have a link to that. Well, we're going to draw from that book. What I liked about the pages that Mike found for us is that It's not just this one event. Of course, these things don't happen just by themselves, usually. There's a a spate of events surrounding it, and that's also part of the very curious, um, dare I say, flap that was happening around this time. And we're also going to draw, of course, from newspaper articles at the time, because this is going to be 1973, and we're going to pull from, uh, I think, other magazine articles, blogs. But first, big thanks and much respect to Lord Coleman, who we've mentioned quite a bit on the show over the years. In addition to his fieldwork, specifically with cryptozoology, Fortiana, folklore and psychology, research and investigations and writing numerous books on those subjects and others, Lauren is one of the main people running the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine on Thompson's Point. So, uh, Scott, you have a little bio for him, right? Lauren Coleman, president of the board. 
for the uh, museum there. Mr. Coleman, 73, is the founder and director of the museum, having collected for over five decades the cryptozoological components and contents of the physical museum. He is a world-renowned expert in the field, author of several foundation books in cryptozoology, and a frequent on-air interviewee and consultant. Mr. Coleman was a full-time researcher at the University of Southern Maine's Edmund S. Muskie School for Public Policy for 13 years, as well as an adjunct assistant and visiting associate professor for over 20 years at USM and five other New England universities. He lives in Portland, Maine, which is, by the way, where all the Philbrooks are from. All my people oh, are up there. There's even oh, a Philbrook, yeah. like a major road up there called Philbrook. I think. <laughs> and besides sharing his collection on loan, he donates over 40 hours a week to running the museum. And on top of that, he's just a really terrific fellow. Uh, yes, he is. Just an upright guy. Very open and accessible. Uh, we just asked him a question today. Yeah, had an exchange on Twitter with him, uh, not just maybe two hours ago. So, But here's the thing. He was there at the time investigating boots on the ground. So it is a definitely worthwhile perspective to hear what he has to say about this. But not just that sighting. A bunch of them around in the area. And this is just a small fraction of the book. So pick that book up. You're going to dig it. And we're going to get back to that now to frame the story here. So Lauren said he received some national publicity for his investigation into the rash of creature sightings in White County in southeastern Illinois. And Lauren says the sheriff there, Roy Posher Jr., threatened to arrest the key witnesses. <laughs> things were, not because he was being mean, things were getting kind of wild and out of hand. Yeah. Lauren had interviewed a couple of the eyewitnesses to the Enfield monster on the evening of April 25th, 1973. One of the first ones was 10-year-old Greg Garrett, and he was playing in his backyard when a horrific creature approached him and stepped on his sneakers, ripping them up. Greg ran inside, crying and scared out of his wits. And the newspapers will say, quote, he was hysterical. So in this piece together timeline, that's one of the first encounters you could say that's been documented. Well, about 30 minutes later, in the late evening of April 25th, 1973, Henry McDaniel hears something scratching on his door. He opens the door to find what he described as, quote, it had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms coming out of its breast area, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half to five feet tall and was grayish colored. It was trying to get into the house. We, of course, opened the show up with that quote, but he stood by that. Remember the description of two pink eyes, okay? So just yeah. write that on a post-it. Put that right onto your 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 sound player thing, your Walkman, yeah. however you're, you're listening to these shows, okay? They're bringing the Walkman back, you know. Well, it was it worked then, it'll work now. Actually, I want to read this article. This is one of the first ones that comes up when you start looking into this sighting. There's mm -hmm. several in the, it, he wound up doing the, Mr. McDaniel wound up doing a, a billion interviews, so, and a lot of things syndicated. But this one comes from the paper, the Mount Vernon Register News of Mount Vernon, Illinois, and it's written by AP writer, Associated Press writer, Dennis Montgomery, dated Friday, April 23rd, 1973. And it's called A Monster at Enfield. And it has a quote above it. It says, three legs, pink eyes, as big as flashlights. So uh, here's the article. Enfield, Illinois. Henry McDaniel says he shot and wounded a monster on his doorstep and is worried it may come back to get even. McDaniel, 50, said he had just returned from a meeting Wednesday night when he heard something scratching on his door. It had three legs on it, he said, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half to five feet tall and was grayish colored. 
It was trying to get into the house, he said. McDaniel, an antique dealer, said he slammed the door and grabbed a pistol and a flashlight from the drawer in his bedroom and returned to the front door, opened it, and spotting the monster about 12 feet from the house, he fired four shots. When I fired that first shot, I know I hit it, he said. The creature gave out a hiss, he said, much like a wildcat's, judging from his imitation of the sound. Covering 50 feet in three jumps, it fled through some brush along a railroad embankment that runs near the McDaniel home. State police, summoned by the frightened McDaniel, arrived too late to spot the creature, but discovered its tracks in the soft earth about the home. McDaniel said the track was like a dog's, except it had six toe pads. Mm. One of the troopers, James Masser, said McDaniel appeared rational and sober. McDaniel said he was sure it wasn't a dog and was positive it wasn't a kangaroo because he said he once had a pet kangaroo while serving with the army in Australia. Asked how he was able to note so many details of the creature in such a short space of time and in the dark, McDaniel said, I have a photostatic memory. And then he recalled the creature's body was almost like a human body. Ew. He said some schoolchildren told him they had seen a similar creature at the school ballpark. If they do find it, they will find more than one, and they won't be from this planet, I can tell you that, he said. Enfield is about 10 miles west of Carmi, White County, in southeastern Illinois. Wow. A couple things I want to point out here. Uh, First of all, you'll note that this article mentions that it was 50 feet of distance, and uh, there are several other sources that say 75 feet. It was reported on over and over. I think people are just guessing the distance there. It doesn't mean that the whole story isn't true. So there's (laughs) that. We measured it, and it can't be possible. Yeah, right. the other thing I want to point out is that Enfield is interesting town. Population mm-hmm. at this time was around 600. It's actually less now. I think it's uh, four oh. or 500 now. It's only one square mile in size. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look on Wikipedia, how they have those, they have notable persons. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Enfield webpage has notable person, singular. There's a notable person. <laughs> oh. And this, listen to this. This is a ball player. His name was Lefty Jamerson, which mm-hmm. sounds like a name I would make up when I'm writing a short story in kindergarten. Or one of the featured players in Field of Dreams. Yeah, well, there's, there's no baseball card on this guy. Because as you might imagine from his name, he batted and pitched left-handed. Mm-hmm. And here's his claim to fame. He pitched for the Red Sox. yeah. In one inning, in one game yeah. against the St. Louis Browns, August 16th, 1924. Wow. So that was way before this happened. But he allowed two runs on one hit and three walks. He never played yeah. in the majors again, but he did play for one season with an NFL team too, the Hartford Blues. And yeah. they only played one season in the NFL. So I don't know if he was well, cursed or whatever, know. but yeah. uh, he played the minors the rest of his career and then was a head football coach at the University of Memphis and later Davidson College right here in my home state of North Carolina. Right, right. Um, just north of Charlotte on Lake Norman or very close. Nice area. Then he, uh, when he passed away, he was living in Moxville. Moxville is about an hour, a little over an hour for me, and it is also the hometown of our former guest on the show and the guy who designed our logo, right. Tommy <laughs> Beaver who told the story of the White Horse of Greensboro. And I don't know if you remember us talking. I can't remember if we talked about it on this show, but there's this weird thing where Moxville is sort of an unofficial collection of strange paranormal events for North Mm -hmm. Carolina. It's not Mm -hmm. in the lore books, but we know of lots of stories relating to it. And I thought it was interesting that Lefty Jamerson wound up in Moxville, which is where he died. So... Anyway, wow. you know, everything is almost or slightly connected. Connected. If you look really hard, and maybe it's not really in this case, but we're making it connected. But 
No. <laughs> no, that's that's what the title is of, of South Park. A lot of people know that, but the animated yeah. show is that, why is it uh, got that crazy opening? Because it's just known for being a weird hotspot for all this weirdness. Yeah. And here's another thing that's fascinating. Our editor, who's been with us for years and is a miracle worker at making our show sound amazing, is from Carterville, which mm-hmm. is just 60 miles southwest of Enfield. And yes. she was texting us. She was like, wait, she was looking into the folders and stuff we were sending tonight. And she noticed that we, you know, because we tracked down Henry McDaniel's draft card, which we'll, we'll put up with the webpage for this episode. And it showed that he was from a Clainsboro, mm-hmm. Illinois. And she said that her team used to play them in high school. So <laughs> she's right from yeah. that very area. Although she would have been born after this happened. So uh, right. anyway, little, another little connection there with our, our very dear friend, Sarah. But I wondered how she was going to react to this story because it's, it's uh, all over the place down there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It makes me want to go over there and check it out. Hey, my name is Shadow Sense, and when I'm not producing electronic music, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, getting back to Henry's story here, again, he said he grabbed a pistol, he shot it, he was sure he hit it. He said, I know I hit it. This thing leaps uh, three times, and it's either 50 or 75 feet away into the brush that covered a railroad embankment lining the property of the McDaniels house. Point is... If this thing is real, if it's like Mothman, if it's some kind of weird cryptid, that doesn't seem that impossible because a lot of people describe these things, look, skinwalkers running by the side of a car doing 75. Yeah. Moving impossibly far distances. That's all part of this whole cryptid show, folks. It's like with Mothman. I think what the description was, remember the very first sighting, not with the kids in the car, but the workers, and they were either uh, highway yeah. workers or at the cemetery. cemetery. Yeah, they cemetery. were digging some holes, of course. They saw this thing kind of leap up, and it flapped a couple of times, but not so much that as would be needed to achieve flight by a winged creature. Right. Maybe they've got one foot into this reality and still one foot into theirs, and they're able to operate at these tremendous and unbelievable feats of uh, locomotion, shall we say. So keep that in mind. It sounds pretty crazy already, I know. Well, that's (laughs) not it, because then Henry McDaniel had another sighting, again on May 6th. Around 3 a.m., McDaniel awoke to the howling of the neighborhood dogs, and he looks out his front door and recalls, quote, I seen something moving out on the railroad track, and there it stood. I didn't shoot at it or anything. It started on down the railroad track. It, It wasn't in a hurry or anything end quote. And after McDaniel's report went public, Enfield was then flooded with the media, paranormal researchers, thrill seekers, and curious citizens. On May 8th, two young men were arrested by Deputy Sheriff Jim Clark on hunting violations when they claimed they had seen a gray, hairy creature and shot at it as it lurked in the bushes. And they thought they had hit it too before it ran off faster than a human can run. Well, Lauren Coleman interviewed two of their friends from Elwood, Indiana, who weren't arrested, Roger Tappy and Mike Mogul, who confirmed the incident. There were five guys total. Right. One of these guys was named Roger Patterson. <laughs> Not the Roger Patterson. I was like, wait, that can't be. And it's like, no, no it can't be because poor Roger passed away from cancer the year before or right before this happened. But I just thought it was interesting. You've got a cryptid hunter mm-hmm. on the scene for this the yeah. year after Roger died. But, you know, I think he was in his teens or whatever. And his name was Roger Patterson, so. Well, not totally uncommon. No. uh, Different cryptid. But But the reason that we're going to throw these names at you, of course, nobody you've heard of, 
is that these are real people. It's not just yes. the man reported. And it's like, well, who? You can't track them down because a lot of people want like, this is a real person. This is a real story. Now, whether you believe they are trustworthy, we're going to get to a little bit later, but at least you know these are real folks. Well, there's another one with a uh, maybe an unbelievable name, but not for radio in the 70s. Lauren also interviewed another witness, the news director for radio station WWKI out of Kokomo, Indiana, who had his own sighting, along with three other associates. And this group had seen a similar beast again on May 6th, near the old abandoned house near Henry McDaniel's property. The creature had its back to them as it ran through the shadows, so they couldn't get a good look, but the group described it as ape-like, around five and a half feet tall, grayish-colored, and stooped. Now, Rick Rainbow's friend shot at the creature and missed, but Rainbow did manage to get a recording of the creature making something described as an ape-like, short, screeching sound. Rainbow was so shaken, he called Lauren back to talk about how something like that was possible. And yes, I said Rick Rainbow. Yeah. That's his radio name, right? That's his radio name. And even Lauren, when he was tweeting at us today, he was like, you're not going to believe this. The guy's name is mm-hmm. Rick Rainbow. And I had been <laughs> on Ancestry doing some research anyway on right. our original witness, Henry McDaniel. And I found Rick Rainbow. And it is a stage name. Probably, I don't think yeah. anyone knows this. I feel like, hey, we're breaking. This is breaking news from Astonishing Legends. Right. His actual surname was Rainbolt. B-O-L-T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found him Richard Rainbow, and it you know, indicated that he was the same guy. But yeah, so he must have changed it to Rainbow to get a little more color. No, well, you know what it is sometimes, because my dad was in advertising, and he dealt a lot with radio stations and DJs, right? Because you're buying yeah. airtime, and you're, you're getting your clients' uh, ads on there, and they're reading the ads, so you get to know them. And... What he told me when I was a kid, a lot of the time, is that, yeah, DJs will do that. First of all, it may stave off some of the crazies trying to find you. And it's like, I know you were speaking to my soul when you were on the radio. (laughs) I need to commune with you. So the point, though, is that you have an on-air name, especially if you're a DJ, because if you get arrested, your real name shows up in the media and the papers. Did you know that? Yeah, that's part of the reason why you have a stage name is that, yeah. So if something, not that you're going to do anything bad, but if something happens. Is it too late for us to change our names? No, we, uh, that ship sailed when we uh, launched the first show, but we did think about that. But it's like, man, that is hard to keep up. Plus, yeah. uh, yeah. Better call Saul. Saul Goodman. Yeah. Anyway, good old fashioned, astonishing tangent there with Rick Rainbow. You got to go with it. Well, that's the point, though, is that it's Rick Rainbow, but it's a real person. And he really was the news director for a real radio station, WWKI. So he claims that he was pretty shaken up and that they did get a recording. Now, you had some news about the recording? Yeah, while we were putting the finishing touches on the outline tonight before we were going to record, I was like, wait, we should try to find this. Nobody in the research group, everybody said that it existed. And so I thought, well, I wonder if it's still out there and if Lauren Coleman might have it. He's got a museum. Maybe he still has it. So I tweeted at Lauren. I I sent him a message. I wasn't sure if he'd be on. He's not on Twitter necessarily every day. But I just said, do you have the audio of the infield monster available for sharing? And uh, I sent that at 4.10 p.m. Eastern time. And Mm -hmm. he got back to me like within the hour. And he wrote, uh, lost in translation, hidden in the archives, the four-decade search for the small cassette tape continues. <laughs> uh, so I, I yeah. guess that's not around. It's in the same shoebox as the uh, the original PGF film, yeah. And then he added, amazingly, the reporter's name who recorded the infield cryptids screeching was Rick Rainbow. So, And then he yeah. posted some photos that he said we could use. So you, might, you can see some of those on our page, or you can see them in our Twitter feed. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Coleman. Yes, thank it. you so much. And and thanks for getting back to us so quick. So yeah, I guess that recording is not around. I All also, right. Henry McDaniel did an interview with WGN mm-hmm. that we looked for and have been unable to find. We're not done looking for it, but it, it might be pretty yeah. hard to find. So that would be cool to hear or dig up, as it were. People get Bigfoot calls all the time, so you're either going to believe it or not. Uh, but when I hear Bigfoot calls, it's very distinctive and it's chilling. Yeah, and this and they described this sound as ape-like. I think he did too. And there, there's been a lot of opinions about what this thing might have been because people that identified it visually said, "No, that's not what we're dealing with here." And I think in the end, didn't Lauren say, "I'm not sure that that's right," but the sound matched that kind of sound, which uh... then takes you back to the whole idea of. Is this got some sort of humanoid component to it? This thing ain't, whatever it is, ain't done screeching, okay? Right. So uh, we're going to hear about that in a second here, but you just heard and got the brief overview of the encounters, mainly from Lauren Coleman's POV from his book, of course. But keep in mind that he actually went to these places and he interviewed some of the key witnesses, but now we're going to read an article that occurred just after this event that has a more, shall we say, tongue-in-cheek attitude about the whole affair from the townsfolk. And, of course, the POV of the newspaper reporter. Now, as I read this, think about the coverage of the Kelly Hopkinsville goblet incident. And another thing to keep in mind, you know, I I really wasn't sure if we should read this whole article. I mean, it's not that long, so don't worry. But after talking it over with Scott, we decided, why not? I mean, because this isn't just a story about a monster, right? Or even a whole copse of monsters. It's also a story about regular people just like you and me. It's a story about the Midwest and small-town America and how the good folks that live in the heartland of this great nation of ours handle something this incredible. And if that sounds corny, well, there's nothing corny about fresh-faced youngsters skipping to school and scraping knees and smelling bees and pies cooling softly on the windowsill. Well, sir, if that's corny, then corn me up. Wait, wait, wait. This is familiar to me. This is... That's from The Simpsons. That's from The Simpsons. Yes. Uh, season nine, episode two, The Principal and the Popper. Can you just, let's get to the story. Just read the story. Now, this article appeared in the Reading Eagle, Wednesday, August 22nd, 1973, by reporter Chris Detro of the Copley News Service. So, you know, as we have all know, these reports will get uh, borrowed if they're uh, part of a, uh, a UPI or an Associated Press Uh, They go out on the wire, and it goes a little something like this. Enfield, Illinois. It all started down here a couple of weeks ago. Down here in Enfield, in White County, Illinois, when this good old boy, Henry McDaniel, heard this scratching at his front door. He opened the door and saw, well, he saw this, this critter. And it looked like nothing Henry had ever seen before. Or like nothing you or me had ever seen either, for that matter. Henry says that it was about four to five feet tall and was covered with gray fur. And it had a good-sized wide head, common enough so far. Then it starts sounding a little different. I shone my flashlight on it and saw these two eyes, about three inches apart, kind of glowing red or pink back at me, like truck reflectors. And it had three legs, right in a row, standing there just like a man. Its arms were short and stubby, Henry recalls. That was on April 25th, and Henry says he saw the same thing standing on the B&O railroad tracks outside his house again on May 6th. 
Well, you'd think that with a critter like this running around loose, the whole town of Enfield, population 750, about 30 miles from Kentucky as the crow flies, would either be shivering in their shorts behind locked doors or else fielding a small army to go out and look for it. Not so. In fact, nobody is really doing anything. Because nobody, well, almost nobody, believes Henry. To find out how the townspeople feel about Henry's monster, you don't have to do much except sit. Somebody will bring it up. Quote, I hate to dispute somebody's word on something like that, says the waitress at the Echo Cafe and Motel, but I doubt it. The Echo Cafe and Motel looks to be just about the most modern business in Enfield. And it isn't really an Enfield, but it is a mile south of town at the intersection of routes 45 and 460. Has all the excitement helped business any? Nah, not a bit, she said with a disgruntled shake of her head. You'd think it would have, though, wouldn't you? I think it's about all over now anyway. I heard the sheriff told him he'd better not be seeing any more monsters out there or he'd be off to the funny farm. And somebody said he's left town. Somebody else asked her if they'd caught the monster yet. No, but if we do, we're going to butcher him and eat him. White County Sheriff Roy Posher Jr., a young sheriff with thick, muscular arms and chest, is a little more sure of himself. No, there ain't a damn thing to it, he says flatly. I let all that stuff go on until he got people with guns out there, and then I went out and told him, if I hear any more from out here, I'm hauling you in. Well, he did haul in five monster hunters May 8th and find them for hunting violations. Nothing, especially monsters, is in season now, according to Poshard. But the sheriff is in the White County seat of Carmi, 11 miles away. You go into Enfield expecting to hear a little more on the monster. Reba Trapp thinks they're making a mountain out of a molehill. She owns Reba's Cafe, which shares a building with a Gulf gasoline station. I ordered from a menu above the counter that said, No swearing aloud. Be good or be gone. At the end, Reba has been there a long time. A truck driver was sharing the latest on the monster. The information he was telling the other patrons at Reba's consisted on an account of a University of Illinois anthropology student recording a screech and his assessment that it might have come from a type of ape. I think I'm going to apply for hazardous driving pay every time I come to Enfield, he said, but he wasn't serious. Mrs. McDaniel, an attractive, olive-skinned mother of three, was in the house when Henry saw his quote-unquote monster, and she's glad she didn't see it. McDaniel, a disabled World War II veteran, has two guns in the house, a little twenty-two, which he says makes a pretty good hole, now sits by the door just in case. The other one is in the bedroom, where McDaniel once shot a hole through his wall at something that was fooled around out back of his house. It might have been that thing then. I don't know. Anyway, about 9.30, Henry heard the scratching outside his door and looked out and saw something. He thought it was an animal, maybe a bear. We have bears down here sometimes. He got his gun and a flashlight and went outside, where the wind was blowing strongly. He spotted something between two rose bushes to the left of a big maple tree in his front yard. When he got to within eight feet of the thing, he shined his light right in its eyes. That's when the light came back pink at him. And that's when Henry fired his gun. Four times. And he's sure he hit the thing once. It just hissed. Did you ever hear a cottonmouth hiss? Well, that's how it sounded. And then it jumped into those weeds over there, Henry said, pointing to some thick growth. 
and then it jumped again over that ditch, and then a third time onto the tracks. I never did see it turn, it just jumped. The total distance from the rose bushes to the B&O tracks is about 75 feet. All around the tracks is scrub brush and undergrowth so thick you could dump a body in it, and they'd not find it for a year. Then Henry jumped the ditch and got on the tracks and shined his light. By the time Henry had gone about 80 feet, the thing had gone bootin' and a-scootin' a good 440 yards down to where the tracks curved. The state police had somebody here in a hurry, said Mrs. McDaniel, but they didn't produce any monster. His tracks and some fur on the bushes were all that were left, McDaniel said. Station WWKI in Kokomo, Indiana, sent a guy down for two days, Rick Rainbow. Yes, Rick Rainbow. And he supposedly recorded the same type screech recorded by the UI student. Henry McDaniel says when he saw the monster, it didn't do anything but give a loud, short hiss, and that only when he shot it. When Rainbow came to Enfield, he brought Ed Phillips with him. Ed owns a pet shop in Kokomo, and McDaniel says that he is also a big game hunter. He brought tranquilizer guns and other monster hunting paraphernalia with him, but never got to use it. That's because Poshard put a stop to any and all monster hunting. Rainbow says that he also saw what he thought was the monster in an open end of an abandoned shed near Springerton, north of Enfield. He said it was five to five and a half feet tall and was gray, black in color. But nobody believes Rainbow either. The newest lead on the monster came from Murtis Fields. She's the Enfield town treasurer and also the stringer for the Carmine newspaper and radio station WROY. She got a letter addressed to the publisher of the Enfield newspaper. Murtis is not the publisher of the Enfield newspaper because there isn't a newspaper in Enfield, but she opened the letter anyway. It was from Alan Yorkshire of Elyria, Ohio. He thinks the monster is his pet kangaroo, Macy, who was lost or stolen over a year ago. And he's offering a $500 reward for information leading to the capture of his kangaroo and is supposed to come to Enfield. Henry doesn't think he'll show up, though. And even if he does, it won't do him any good because Henry's sure it's not a kangaroo. I used to have one as a pet myself, he says, until I sold it to this fella that had an animal show. And kangaroo tracks have claw marks, and a kangaroo has a narrow face, and this wasn't no kangaroo. The treatment he's getting from the rest of the town bothers Henry and his wife, and a derogatory poem is being circulated about Henry and the monster, which makes McDaniel wonder. Well, they think I'm crazy, he said. I can't help what I saw. But it's not my problem. That thing kills somebody. It just isn't my problem. If I see it again, though, I'm going to call the FBI, not the sheriff. There's other people that's seen it, too. They just ain't saying anything. I just wish all of this was over, said Mrs. McDaniel. Well, I did my best not to do a Garrison Keeler impression <laughs> where the where the men are strong and the women are good looking and the children are above average. I don't know. I can't he's I haven't heard that show in so many years. I, I, yeah, I yeah, forgot how yeah. he speaks. But uh but yes, no, it's the <laughs> I'm being serious here. Uh did you get a tone from that article? Yeah, I got a tone of condescension, a tone of someone from the big city making fun of small yeah. town folks, treating them as rubes. and A slightly bigger city, yeah. I mean, this guy, Henry, is a, a disabled World War II veteran. His yeah. father fought in World War I. Yeah. Because I found the records on these folks. His wife was from Chattanooga. 
this guy's seen the world. He had a pet kangaroo in Australia. <laughs> He's not like, yeah. no matter how eccentric he might be, and, and right. God only knows how he would be. I don't know. I couldn't find the military records, uh, but he definitely yeah. was a veteran. He was, in fact, when he passed away, he passed away at a VA hospital. So there's no question that he was an actual veteran. Yeah. But God only knows what he went through or what he saw in World War II. Yeah. So if I he know. was a little bit eccentric, he might have been, but. You know, it just bothers me these these articles like this that are like, oh, nobody believes Henry, you know, and uh, it's it. This <laughs> is uh, you know, everybody know. just he's a rube, and it reminds me of Kelly Hopkinsville. It's like they were just a bunch of dumb, drunk rednecks, and yeah, you know, they wanted well, to make money on their story, and you know, I mean, the thing about Henry was he was after he was ready to, by all accounts, every the research that we've done so far, is he, he was you know on the phone nonstop with reporters. Yeah. He was getting sick of talking about it, thinking of when they said, I heard when that waitress at the hotel said, oh, by the way, you, you know me, I'm collecting strange things. I told folks on the junk drawer <laughs> show the other day that yeah. the main show, you guys haven't heard this, but I got a receipt from Charles Fort's grandfather's grocery business in Albany. It's signed by Charles Fort's grandfather. Yeah. And I bought Peter it from Van a place Franken that, Fort, I yeah, think. Yeah, Peter Van Frank, Franken Fort. And it's so interesting to me because the person who had it, it was just like, you want to buy these old grocery slips? It was yeah. only like four bucks, five bucks, which is awesome. <laughs> right. So now I got yeah. this thing that his grandfather, from the business that Charles Fort refused to work at. But what I was going to say is the other thing I got for us, and I think I showed you a picture of this, was that interview that they did regarding, um, from the story you just read, with the waitress who was like, yeah, it has an improved business and he's crazy and whatever else. That was at a hotel in the area and I got a postcard from that hotel. Oh, I showed cool. you the picture. I yes, bought the postcard. Again, that was like $4. So I'm going to put that on the wall. People can be like, what's that? And I can be like, well, this is the postcard where they interviewed the lady who said that Henry McDaniel was crazy about yeah. <laughs> talking about the infield monster. But anyway, it's a very chic looking hotel. Yeah, uh, well, it's true. really cool. Very sixties, mid century. It's a neat hotel on the postcard. I looked for it on Google Maps. It's not there anymore. Here's the other thing I wanted to say is while you were reading the article, that kangaroo, and I'm sure they can do this, mm -hmm. but that kangaroo, if it was that man's kangaroo from Ohio, it would have had to travel 480 miles. Oh, <laughs> without <laughs> they, getting they hit by hop. a car or yeah. a truck or being seen by anyone along the way and making the news as a you know yeah. rando kangaroo that's right gone 500 miles well this control. one can travel 50 <laughs> to 75 feet in three hops so there you go yeah that but the, and that hopping part is interesting but you know also he said it had three feet which is one of the craziest well, things three feet then it's got the eye shine right all that stuff it's it's fascinating no here's the thing uh again he you know you might think he's uh well one one explanation is that it's just a scam to bring tourism to Enfield, and it's like well think about it it's like you show up in Enfield and there's nothing there. Yeah. That's it. It's not like, here are some tracks, or if you hang out, you might be able to see the Marfa lights. If you hang out, maybe you'll see, uh, you know, the Brown Mountain lights, because those happen every once in a while. That kind of stuff brings people continually. It's like, where was the kangaroo? I don't know. It's just, there's some tracks, and it's gone now because it rained. Yeah. There's nothing to do there. So it, it's yeah. kind of a weak plan, not to jump ahead, but that's one excuse people were saying, like, well, there, he's just, you know, causing a ruckus and, and pulling a prank and this and that. I distinctly heard a ruckus. Right. Somebody will get that. Well, if he's, look, if, if he's telling the, if he's being accurate about what he saw, if he does have that eidetic memory, he was close to this thing. He's not 50 yeah. feet away. Apparently this thing was 10 feet. That's why he was so sure he hit it, if you believe him. He was also younger than I am now. Right. And I feel like I'm pretty <laughs> sentient. Now, I haven't been to war, thank God. Right. I hope that I never have to go. But like I said, who knows what his experiences were like, but... As they said, he was a rational and sober person. Right. He didn't smell of booze. 
and he wasn't a raving maniac, the sheriff, the police officers there said like, well, yeah, I mean, he seems pretty, I mean, he's startled, of course, but uh, he's a pretty sound mind. And guess what? To this day, Carmi is a very small town. I was just watching some news uh, reports from it. And as they say nowadays, it's a very small town. Everybody knows each other. So when the, the Carmi high school wrestlers went and shoveled everyone's walks, they knew all the people there. You know, that's small town life in America. The other thing I want to say is that people might object. It's like, well, he's just shooting a gun off in all directions or whatever. And that's dangerous. It's like, no, you, you have to picture where this was in 73, especially. There's nothing around. He's not going to hit anything. It's just the railroad tracks. It's not you in your suburb now where it's pretty crowded. And yes, you shouldn't do that. It's not even suburbia. Yeah. It's country. I, and I, <laughs> it I'm is, pretty yeah. sure I figured out where that house, the house may still be standing. We don't have a right. street address. Yeah. But I found the area where there's double tracks and there's a bend in the tracks and this town's only one square mile. I'm pretty sure I can pinpoint almost exactly where this happened. I don't know which side of the tracks he was on, but yeah. Yeah, and it does help, I would say, when you go to investigate it. So let's continue on with that, shall we? So Indeed. on May 12th, Lauren Coleman actually heard the creature himself making a high-pitched screech. Lauren happened to be with someone, you're going to dig this, Scott, someone we've talked about before in our Resurrection Mary series, Chicago radio host, writer, and paranormal researcher, Richard Crow. Yes, I'm a huge fan Fantastic. of Richard Crow. Yeah. Like, where is his work? I want to uh, I know. I want to hear we more of it. it. He, <laughs> I've heard his voice is, uh, it's kind of like Hoyt Axton in Gremlins. You know, the uh, guy I love that sold him the I Gremlin. He has a very yeah. deep, uh, really cool voice. And he was a prominent part of the Resurrection Mary series. Yes. And so I, I love the idea of Richard Crow and Lauren Coleman in this little town oh, looking yeah. for this thing. It's, it's just, that uh, is uh, sublime. Right. Again, <laughs> it, like I said, you can say this is all ridiculous. These people are pulling one over on us, but I say that is fun. I would yeah. love to go legend tripping. Now, not to say I might not soil myself had I been uh, 10 feet away from this thing and it lunges at me. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to behave, but I'm willing to take that risk. Hello, this is Aleko with the Intelligent Design Collective podcast. And when I'm not searching for the uncaused cause of metaphysics, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Calling back to Charles Fort, his last book, Wild Talents, one of the main tenets of, of the book was that people could do these outrageous, amazing things, maybe like ESP, all these other things that they do because it's a primordial sense or talent or skill that sounds outrageous now, but was developed throughout the evolution of humanity to keep us alive. That right. feeling of sensing eyes on you, like, you better get out of here, buddy. There's a large jungle cat in the bushes and he's ready to pounce. Uh, you may not see or hear him, but you know you're being watched. Get out of there or climb a tree, monkey man. So these ideas, though, are not that crazy. Maybe they're just evolutionary. They're just invisible. Yeah. A little over a month after the Enfield encounter, which occurred on May 25th, on June 6th, there were three reports from Lauren's book, quote, of a musty-smelling red-eyed human-sized creature, end quote, roaming the woods on the eastern edge of the town of Edwardsville, Illinois. It was reported at, get this, five and a half feet tall, with broad shoulders, and with eyes that were light-sensitive. It also walked silently. Witnesses told police that the creature chased them, and one witness telling police that this thing had ripped his shirt and clawed his chest. 
Two sightings of what might be the same monster occurred on June 4th, and one sighting on June 8th. All three sightings happened in the woods near the creeks of Mooney, Little Mooney, and Sugar Creek. Well, as another one of our favorite radio personalities says, that's not the end of the story. <laughs> or was it? Or was it? That's, uh, that's not Keith Morrison. That is... Uh, it's Paul Harvey. That's right. And that's the rest of the story. So, no, that wasn't the end of the sightings, but, but what'd you think of the ones we just covered here? Well, it's interesting. These areas are spread out a pretty good ways, but mm-hmm. they all, <laughs> the other thing that's crazy about them is that Enfield is the hub and those places are spokes of Ooh. sightings, uh, Ooh. from what I can tell. Yeah. I mean, that's just a cursory research thing on Google Maps or whatever, mm-hmm. but you look at Enfield and you've got, you've got something happening off to the northeast, something happening off to the northwest, something right. happening off to the southwest. And so if you're looking at it, I mean, the stuff I've looked up so far, it's almost like the five side of uh, a dice, of a, a side, one die. You wonder if this is indeed the same beast and it's real, how's it getting around? Well, the other thing I was looking at a second ago was the railroad maps because it's going to these towns that seem like they might have been linked by the train. But I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah. you get this like alien thing riding a train. Maybe it's got a <laughs> UFO uh, to, that it can call on or it's interdimensional right, if you believe right. any of this at all. But uh, the other thing that was exciting for me was when I heard about when uh, Henry McDaniel was talking about it went out there to the tracks. It's the B&O yeah. railroad tracks, which yeah. is the Baltimore and Ohio uh, railroad. Yeah, yeah. And I know it very, very well because when I was a kid, I came from humble beginnings. My mom and I, I was, my parents were divorced and my mom, and there's a train right now. Yeah. I don't know if you guys can hear that. But anyway, the first and coolest thing I got when I was a kid and it didn't have a lot of stuff because we, my mom and I were broke, was right. a, an HO scale B&O railroad. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so I had that on it. It was on a piece of plywood, a four by eight piece of plywood, which yeah. is grass. I didn't have buildings or anything, <laughs> but like. Oh, yeah. But I remember I spent so much time like playing with that train and looking at that locomotive. I know exactly what it looks like. It had the colors with yeah. like blue and gold and like. And so the minute I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about the B&O since I was a kid. Anyway, yeah. so Topeka and the Atchison and Santa Fe. Ew, nice. No, in this one, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, also what kind of creeps me out about, I don't know how far away this is, but it makes me think of Velisca and some serial yeah. killer uh, yeah. who has the devil whispering in his ear, riding the rails, murdering people at will. Okay, well, talking about uh, the continuation, there are some other incidents that happened, and I wonder if it's not the same thing, or if it is, or a variation, because it does make a difference. Now, who's our creature feature coming up next? Well, it's the Big Muddy Monster. This is from page 144 of Lauren Coleman's book, Bigfoot, The True Story of Apes in America. Lauren talks about the sightings of the Big Muddy Monster. Name that because of the sightings that occurred in the summer of 1973 near the Big Muddy River. And several rivers, that's their nickname, but this is the actual name of this river. So shortly after midnight on June 25th, 1973, Randy Needham and Judy Johnson were parked on a boat ramp on the Big Muddy River near Murfreesboro, Illinois. The couple was startled to hear an inhuman screech coming from the nearby woods. They described it as, quote, about three times as loud as a bobcat, only deeper, end quote. The couple looked up to find a huge upright beast walking on two legs approaching them, still shrieking, but now in what Lauren described as alerting tones. Yeah. 
Both people concurred the biped was about seven feet tall with short white body hair that was matted with river mud. The creature got as close as 20 feet from the couple before they sped off to the Murfreesboro Police Station. Two Murfreesboro police officers, Merrill Lindsay and Jimmy Nash, investigated the site and filed a report saying they found footprints they described as, quote, impressions in the mud approximately 10 to 12 inches long and approximately 3 inches wide, end quote. Randy Whoa. Needham later described the footprints as being, quote, something like a man with a shoe on would make, only the thing wasn't wearing shoes, end quote. Needham, that's one of the couple, also yeah. thought that toe prints might not have registered in the mud. Also, according to Lauren's book, Officers Jimmy Nash and Merrill Lindsay witnessed Randy Needham, that's the person we were just talking about. Yeah, the, the male of the couple. Yeah, the male. And Deputy Sheriff Bob Scott returned to the scene around 2 a.m. and discovered something even more unusual. There were fresh tracks similar in appearance to the ones left an hour earlier, but these were deeper and smaller. There's a baby. A baby. It's a baby <laughs> White. Trying to, yeah. Yeah. And the police report noted something especially odd. From the book and the report, it stated, quote, the prints in the mud were very erratic and that no two were the same distance apart and some were five to six feet apart. Also, right. prints were found very close together. Now that comes from the police report. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah the police are finding this. Okay. So I just have a quick comment here. You know, this unexpected pattern of prints also seems to sometimes happen with examinations of more traditional Bigfoot tracks. Remember, uh, researchers have claimed that they've seen tracks that just stop in snow or mud or find a single footprint all by itself in the same condition with nothing else around it, no prints leading yeah. up to it or leading away. And if That's you remember, right. Scott, we got to ask Bob Gimlin sitting two feet away from us what yeah. he saw, because I was always curious, like, he's a tracker. He went as far as he could. What did you see? And what he told us, uh, Bob Gimlin said that when he started tracking panties prints, he came to one that was only half of a wet footprint left on a boulder. And where she would have had to walk into the brush was so dense, he couldn't make his way through it to keep going. That's what's kind of weird. I mean, right. animals go through brush all the and time. And I think it was also up a super steep hill, too. It was starting to, yeah, yeah, he could tell that it was really hard, dense brush to go through. Now, if you've been out in the woods and you've seen big game go through brush, they certainly do. They'll leave clumps of hair. They'll create a hole. They'll break twigs and sticks and, and uh, branches as they go through. He didn't see anything. So I wonder, of course, Patty had to, to get her feet wet crossing that creek there. She leaves half a footprint, and then it's like she vanished. Yeah. I wanted to read this little excerpt from one of these articles. It's from a clipping from the St. Cloud Times mm -hmm. uh, that one of our researchers found in the Astonishing Research Corps. This is about a gentleman named Ed Phillips. He was a pet shop owner who came from yeah. Kokomo, Indiana. That's right. A friend from there, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> to check out the tracks and was there right. to see the tracks. And he said in this one article entitled Infield Monster, The Beginning of a Legend. And look mm -hmm. at that. It must be because we're talking about it here, you know, astonishing legends. Yeah. That's what we do. Anyway, this quote from Phillips, the pet store owner says, quote, it couldn't be a hoax, end quote, Phillips said. The tracks were hidden under dense bush as well as in the open, he said. Plaster casts were made. Which, this brings a point. I don't know where these casts are. I haven't read anything about those being on file anywhere. Have uh, you? Who knows? This stuff just gets... Uh, no, like, I know, but it's know. like you you did more research on this than I did, so I, I you didn't come across it. It's like, oh yeah, they have the tracks here. Lauren Coleman has them, nobody... No. I, in fact, I'll ask him that right now. You should ask... <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> he's a, folks, he's going to yeah. tap out a tweet. Uh, right yeah, now. I don't know. He's probably not awake. It's uh, 10 till 1 in the no, morning. No, don't bother the poor man. Yeah. April 21st. No, DM him and see if he's got anything to say. Like I said, you know, this stuff is a fair He hasn't responded to my DM, so we just got to do it right out in public. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I think it's interesting about Phillips saying the tracks were in this dense bush and out in the open. So yeah. then you get back to that whole thing about is this... Does that mean it just was really adept at moving? If something this big, it's like, how is it getting under the brush? I don't. Uh, is it doing that because it's a, you know, it's no. it's a really good at walking off trail, or is it materializing? I guess is what I'm pointing at. I will say this: if you go along that route, if you take that bend in the road of belief, I've heard many stories. One coming from our our distant friend Paul Sinclair up in the Yorkshire area that he's taken a lot of reports of strange things moving in the trees, but effortlessly, big, I mean, like Flixton werewolf kind of stuff. Things moving where it doesn't seem possible. The, the, as I said before, the physics don't match up. It doesn't seem right. Uh, a very good friend of ours who has another podcast, this person, I don't want to out them because it's, it was a personal story of theirs. I asked him, I was like, you ever seen anything weird? And they said, well... One time while riding ATVs with her family, saw something big, like a big black dark shadow, some kind of big bipedal beast of sorts running through the brush, keeping up with them. So no, there is something yeah. about that, about them yeah. moving in impossible ways, let's say, that the physics of actual underbrush like that make it impossible. Because I will say this. I was just thinking about this when you and I were driving to Nashville from the Carolinas, and it's beautiful and lush, and you look off into the woods, and it's really green there. Again, it's late summer, but it's very full of vegetation, of flora, and what people don't realize is that when you see that, you have not tried to walk through that. Let me tell you, folks, guaranteed, yeah. you try to walk through that, you will not make it very far. Yeah. It is so dense, you know, most of the time when you're walking through the woods, you're on a trail. Right. And... You know, I certainly I've been through the woods where you can walk between the trees, but some of that where it's real green and it's, there's a lot of brush, you can't get through it. It's hard to get through it with a machete. Keep that in mind again, impossible movements we're talking about here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nathan Bluto. And when I'm not convincing my teachers to listen to Astonishing Legends, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. So Officer Lindsay leaves the party to go get a camera to take pictures of the prints. And while the other three are still there following the tracks, they bend down to examine some. And Officer Nash describes hearing, quote, the most incredible shriek I've ever heard, end quote. The trio thought this thing was hiding in the woods less than 100 yards away, but they didn't stick around to search for it. They sped off in the squad car. The officers came back and searched the area and the hours that followed, trying to find the source of an unknown splashing sound, but found nothing. The activity seemed to quiet down once day came, and the creature seemed to have returned once it got dark. The first sighting later that evening came from a four-year-old named Christian Beryl, who told his parents, that's B-A-R-I-L, so mm -hmm. Beryl, maybe it's Beryl, I might not be yeah. saying it right. Yeah, right. Uh, who told his parents he had seen, quote, a big white ghost in the yard, end quote. Of course, they didn't believe him, thinking it was the whimsy of a child. Um, <laughs> remember that saying? Yeah, right. That, yeah, I can't remember which one of the kryptonaut guys 
said that, uh, but yeah, we were discussing Sam, the Sandown Cloud. Yes, and, the, uh, the and, and so, yeah, but we've talked about that. And also with Terry Lovelace. Is that, it's a disguise. Uh, the whims of a child, they make up stories, but guess what? Sometimes there's a, often a kernel of truth yes. there. They're just not expressing it in the way that us adults uh, would imagine it. But then about 10 minutes later, uh, this couple, Randy Creeth and Cheryl Ray, mm -hmm. reported seeing something fitting that description in a neighboring yard. Around 10.30 p.m., Creeth and Ray were sitting on the back porch of Cheryl Ray's home when they heard something moving in the trees beyond the lawn. They claimed they saw this creature staring at them from an opening in the, well, I guess it's a copse of trees, isn't it? One of us had to say it, and I think I, I beat you to it, but yes. Well, uh, trees, quietly watching them with glowing pink <laughs> eyes. Jerome Clark, a friend and associate of Lauren Coleman, interviewed Cheryl Ray. Yes. And she insisted that the eyes were glowing and not reflecting as there was no nearby light source that could have caused eye shine. Yeah, so coming back to remember what Henry McDaniel said about, uh, what did he describe remember, him as? Uh, as what I said at the top of the show, glowing pink eyes. He said they were big and pink. Now, that's what I'm saying. This is not in the same location. Yeah, so that's it's what Henry McDaniel said about the yeah. glowing pink eyes that he said were as large as flashlights. Right. I'm saying that he also shined a flashlight. Yeah, he did shine a flashlight, but the quote right. specifically that he said, as large as flashlights in his quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking at this time, it's those old-timey flashlights where you slide the button on, probably like a two-inch diameter, three. It depends. Yeah. I have a, a collection of old flashlights. Some are about three or four inches in diameter. just depends on the well, reflector yeah, size. Well, you have to get the D-cell, maybe. That's the kind yeah. you got uh, back then. The other one that I liked is uh, it attached to the uh, the actual big battery with, with the springs. Remember those that yes. you used to uh, heat up your Cox airplane uh, yeah. engine block with? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, back then, 73, he's shining a light on him. The point here is that this was on some Porch, Cheryl Ray's home, and she said there's no light that was shining. Th these eyes were giving off light. Right. That's the freaky thing. Okay. They're not shining a light at it. The porch light is not yet on. So, anyway, this description sounds like the same creature that was seen the night before by Randy Needham and Judy Johnson, or mm -hmm. it was at least similar. It was described as white and dirty, yep. possibly weighing close to 350 pounds and standing around seven feet tall. Yeah. It had a large round head. And Cheryl Ray thought its arms might be ape length, although she couldn't be sure because the beast was standing in waist-high grass. Randy Creeth goes down to the tree line for a better look, crazy, while Ray <laughs> turned on the porch light. Right. But the light didn't show any more of the creature than they had already seen. And then, well, it goes on, and you're just going to have to buy Lauren Coleman's yes. terrific book to find out more. <laughs> it's there, right. There's more to it, but it's still. Well, we're not quite done, uh, but yeah. just if you like this kind of stuff, buy the books. It's just, yeah. it, again, I really enjoyed just reading all these accounts, and it made me wonder, you know, what keeps me thinking, the philosophy of it is... I don't want this thing chasing me. I don't want my shirt scratched off. Certainly, if a, if it's, it's a new nice shirt and I just ironed it, I don't want anything harassing me, jumping at me, leaping. <laughs> you know, I gotta sleep safely at night. I don't need anything yeah. peering through the windows. Okay, but the idea though is like, what if you could travel back in time and be right there at Enfield at that moment on that lawn, nineteen seventy three, May twenty fifth, April twenty fifth, and see this thing. And yeah. he had a camera. And then you wonder, like, why are these all these times in the past all special and they don't seem to happen anymore? Well, folks, they do happen. You just don't know about them yet. Right now, as you listen to this, probably 10 things like this are happening throughout the U.S. Maybe 
a thousand things like this are happening around the world. We just don't know about them yet, but they happen because you can't deny the logic of like 20 years from now. It's like, yeah, hey, remember back on uh, April 20th, 2022, when that weird thing came out and scared the people at the uh, Cinnabon? You're going to read it back. It's like, well, where, where, where was I? It's like, well, there were people there. It happened. These things happen yeah. all the time. You just think yeah. like, well, nothing's happening now because you don't see it. Everything is perspective. Everything is POV. Everything is personal. For you, it's still the 20th. For me, it's the 21st. I know. It's the clock is ticked <laughs> round. Uh, point being is when we record this, it's like right now, weird stuff's happening out there. That's right. Uh, and That's right. Uh, just because you aren't around to see it doesn't mean it's not also happening out there. You know, that's right. guess what's happening at Skinwalker Ranch right now? Who knows? A portal's opening up and uh, someone's leaving a dookie on the other side. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's happening. We now know about it later on. Because there's a record of it. And people were, let's say, they didn't care so much about the reputation as much because, as Henry says, they know what they saw. People think he's crazy. He knows that. But he spoke up. And that's how we know about it. And you get made fun of. So a lot of people don't like to speak about this stuff. But there's a few brave souls out there who do. And that's why people are listening to this right now. So there, there were some strange events leading up to the Enfield encounter. Yeah. Uh, from the chapter, a look back, this is on page 140 of Coleman's book, Bigfoot, the True Story of Apes in America. During the first week of August, 1970, yeah. a woman named Vicki Otto writes Lauren Coleman to tell him she spotted something near Ireland Grove Road, three miles southeast of Bloomington, Illinois. She described approaching something on the road she thought at first was a dog reflecting eye shine from her car's headlights. But getting closer, she said, I saw this ape running in the ditch. <laughs> the thing I saw was the size of a baboon. Okay. Yeah. Then um, August 16th, 1970, around 9.30 p.m., Dan Lindsay and Mike Anderson were driving along Route 136 heading towards Kickapoo Creek Bridge north of Waynesville, Illinois. Mike Anderson described the encounter by saying, my first thought was a tall man or maybe a bear or a gorilla. The thing stood six feet, five inches tall, was all brown and had stooped shoulders, walking on two legs and illuminated by the car lights. It more or less trotted across to the west side and along the creek's edge, and then it was gone. Okay, so that's 1970. And then right. there's a flap that happens one year before Enfield in 72. Right. And that's with Momo, who that's our right. good friends at Small Town <laughs> yeah. Monsters have worked on. And, and yeah. during the summer of 1972 in Louisiana, Missouri, just across the border with Illinois, there were reports of Momo being spotted. You know, we talked about Momo in our interview with musician, author, and kick cryptid hunter Lyle Blackburn <laughs> in episode yep. 146 of Astonishing Legends right. titled Lyle Blackburn, Cryptid Hunter. That came out on June 15th of 2019. That was a fun discussion. And he yeah. is pretty and, kick I gotta say. Yeah, so you respects. can go back and find that episode if you want to get drill down on that even more. Momo, for those of you who don't recall, was a reported very tall, very smelly, Bigfoot-like creature that had <laughs> long hair yeah. covering its entire body, including its eyes and face, terrorized two women out for a picnic in their Volkswagen Beetle, and ate one of their egg salad sandwiches <laughs> and one or two Which gulps. is my favorite part of that. I mean, I don't want to lose yes. it. I mean, I love egg salad. I don't want to lose a sandwich, but just to see like, just gone. I mean, it's it's frightening. Not to not to diminish how scared they were. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And another sighting of a Momo-like creature was reported in the summer of '72 on two separate occasions in the two months prior by 18-year-old Randy Emert on July 26th. Emert told the Peoria Journal Star that the quote monster end quote was similar to Momo and that it was kind of white and moved quick. 
Emert said it stood between 8 and 12 feet Whoa. tall. And according to him, the monster also stank pretty bad and seemed to scare the woodland animals near Cole Hollow Road. Emert also said the beast made a noise uh, that sounded like a long screech, like an old steam engine whistle, only more human. He wasn't the only one to see the monster, though. His friends had also seen it or saw the footprints. But he was the one to speak up, saying, I'm kind of a spokesman for the group, the only one who has guts, I guess. Other friends of Emert's, all of the children of Ann Cameron or Peoria, confirmed they had seen it too, stating it sounds kind of weird. At first, I didn't believe it, but then my daughter-in-law saw it. That's maybe people getting the idea that something's lurking around, but they then see something unusual themselves. Yeah, right. And Randy Emert thought that the beast may be living in a hole dug under the basement of an old abandoned house in the woods that had footprints all around it. Another interesting possible connection is that one of the main witnesses of the Momo encounter, Edgar Harrison, thought Momo also might be squatting in an abandoned building. Just south of Peoria, in Pekin, Illinois, another monster sighting occurred, this time in the Illinois River, which runs through Peoria alongside Pekin. On July 25, 1972, a local resident reported seeing something big swimming in the river. Two nights later, on July 27, two locals reported to police seeing something that was 10 feet tall and, quote, looked like a cross between an ape and a caveman. In the UPI article that followed, it was described as having a face with long gray U-shaped ears, a red mouth with sharp teeth, and thumbs with long second joints. One of the witnesses said it smelled like a musky, wet-down dog. More than 200 phone calls about the creature had been made to the East Peoria Police Department. On the same evening, that same night, July 25th, 72, 280 miles to the south, Cairo, Illinois resident Leroy Summers reported seeing another type of creature, something about 10 feet tall, white and hairy, was standing upright near the Ohio River levee. The Cairo PD investigated and found nothing when they got there, and then Police Commissioner James Dale warned that anyone making another monster report would have his breath tested for alcohol. <laughs> so there uh, Well, that's a, a spate of stuff that happened before Enfield. And right. we told you some cases that happened after Enfield. Yeah. So again, that paper, you know, what we just read as far as the, the sociological aspect is just studying how people react to these kind of things. But of course, they're not equipped to tell you what these things are or why people are seeing this kind of weird stuff. It just happens. And some of them uh, now remind me of the uh, the, the Yeti at uh, Universal Studios that, that screams out at you with the red eyes. Yes. Or the Bumble. Bumble's bounce. I'm sorry. I'm at a loss on that one. No, don't go. That's the... <laughs> Come on, man. Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Be, I'm sorry. It may as well, you may as well be speaking Mandarin to me right now. I have no idea. You've never seen uh, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer? Oh, God. Yeah. I don't know that character's okay. name. Right. Yeah, the, okay. uh, the Bumble, the, the giant Yeti type thing. Oh, yeah. Sure. Gotcha. And uh, he had white fur. But uh, again, that's how people picture Yetis, white fur. But not muddy and not down on the lowlands here. Yes. Down by the levee. So as we wrap this up, finally, thankfully, mercifully, what is going on, Scott? Well, I'm not sure I know. I mean, I guess we know more about what, how people might be reacting to it, how it might be incorrectly investigated by folks looking yeah. at it. Well, this episode had two aspects to it. It's one, the sightings, which are fun to relay, but also a method of analyzing these and thinking about it as far as how people react, as we've been saying, and 
how they're going to react in the future yeah. when these things happen. Yeah. It's predictable. People are predictable to a certain well, extent. Well, yeah, and we've seen those, as long as we've been doing the show, we see all these patterns in every legend we cover. Any kind of right. sighting, it's the same, whether it's the Jersey Devil or Momo right. or uh, this case. There's patterns that you recognize and there's behavior that you recognize and it it always plays out the same way. Yeah. I mean, from the believing stance to the the skeptical to the debunker. Right. And, and those aren't the same things. We're not saying that. It's people like, well, I don't know what this is. And, and uh, guess what? I don't have time for this. <laughs> so like, another pattern for me that I see and I've learned about from our show is that I sometimes I think it's just the one incident and then the person makes up the second or the third one or wants to say other right. people saw it so as to not sound crazy. And so yeah. then yeah. you come back down to, for me, if as a personal investigator, if I was in the field, I would probably only be concerned with the initial sighting of a person who was unaware of any other sightings at any given moment. So mm. in this case, I would want to investigate Henry McDaniel's first sighting and get all the information I could on that. And then I right, would just right. say, you know what, I'm going to assume the second one is him trying to validate what happened to him the first time. Or Possibly. I'm going to say, no, but I'm just saying, and I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying this is right, the approach right. I would take. And I'm yes. going to say that if he says someone else saw it, that doesn't mean anything to me. And mm. then if there are other eyewitnesses, then what you're going to have to show me as another eyewitness is that when you saw it, you weren't aware of his story at all. You either right. saw it before he did or... You saw it after he did, but you were completely in the dark about the experience that he had. When yeah. those two things come together, when it's his first story and then another one similar to it, maybe from another town, from another person who had no idea what happened to Henry, then that's the data that I want to work off of because yeah. that it takes away the I'm trying to validate this and trying to validate that. Uh, I want people to believe me or I like the attention I got the first time I reported this, even if it was real. All of right. those things get removed when you look at that first instance. So that would be where my investigations would try to start, would be what was this first incident and are there other incidents that are similar from people who didn't know about the incident from our witness zero? And yeah. then when you circle back on that and you say, okay, let's say, I'm going to make an assumption, he made up the additional sightings, he wasn't able to point to other people who said they also saw, you know, we don't know about the little boy. Maybe he did encounter mm -hmm. something, maybe he didn't. But let's say it's all about that first one. And then when you come back down to one thing and he hears something scratching at the door and he comes out with a pistol and he sees something in the bushes in the dark, it's an incredibly windy night, he fires off four shots, something takes off, something strong. I think, yes, he saw an animal, but I also think if you take that down to this one instance in the dark, 9.45, 10 p.m., mm -hmm weird noises. You're a little freaked out. You're freaked out enough that you're coming to the door with a gun and a flashlight. Right. It's possible to make a mistake there of some kind. Sure. And sure. then you come back to the whole thing about the the bear with mange, the whatever. Maybe it's, <laughs> you know, something yeah. strange. Maybe it is some... The nude sloth. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Some kind well, sloths <laughs> can't leap. Like, I believe him about it. it got to the train Slowly. tracks really fast. Yeah. Now, let's say he's exaggerating that. It's 75 feet away. Maybe it didn't right. make three leaps. Maybe it just right. ran fast. It, it yeah. looked a little humanoid. Well, that could be any fur-bearing varmint without its fur, if it has a problem, yeah. can look kind of humanoid because, oh, it's got skin. So it's like there's all kinds of mistakes that could be made. Sure, sure. If, so if you can't point to other people who saw the same thing and the first-time instances, that would be my thing. So when I look at yeah. this this situation, 
Well, also keeping in mind that this was different than, seems to me, than what other people like Rick Rainbow were seeing later. Yeah. Uh, a larger, furrier thing that was taller, maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, th these are, <laughs> that's what I love about all these sightings. Yeah. yeah so the other these thing that happens weird. is when a bunch of people go out in the woods at night that are never in the woods at night, and the woods yeah. are usually by themselves at night, and whatever's in those woods is by itself at night, and suddenly they're in proximity to each other, you might see something strange. You know, and I can tell right. you, you know, right. I... For a while, my <laughs> wife and I had a house out in the country in uh, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which I've mentioned on the show before, near the Delaware River. And that river valley is spooky. It's a spooky valley. There's Sasquatch sightings, everything. And, you know, we'd be out there at night on our porch just hanging out and talking late into the wee hours, having mm -hmm. wine or whatever, midnight, one in the morning. And I heard critters that I could not tell you what they were. Now, I'm right, not a right. hunter and I'm not a tracker. And maybe some of my neighbors who are lifelong hunters, a dear friend, Don, who I talked about in the Arkapalooza series, maybe he could have said, oh, yeah, that's a great horned owl. That's this, that, and the other. But I, I distinctly remember a few hearing a few things that I was just like, I cannot possibly imagine what that animal is. I have no mm -hmm. idea what that is. So it occurs to me that uh, some folks might encounter things that they don't really know what they are, and then they speculate on it. And so I can see how these things might be misinterpreted. On the other hand, I also, as I think have, have, have made clear on the show in the past, it's, I know, I believe you can encounter things that are strange, especially uh, yeah. if you're on Skinwalker Ranch or you're on some of the other places that have its similar reputation and they're out there. There's other ones that aren't as famous as the ranch, but they have all the kind of same stuff going on, the kitchen sink stuff. I, I do believe that stuff happens. In this mm -hmm. particular story, and I don't think it's fair for the journalists and for the everybody, you know, to say, oh, he's just an old hick with a gun or whatever. I don't <laughs> right. I don't like that assessment because yeah. I know a lot of old hicks. And if, yeah, after you talk to him for a while, you yeah. you realize that they might have a thick accent, but they're just as smart as the rest of us. And right. they're they're not all inbred and have no worldly experience. I mean I don't come into it with those judgments, so I don't like that assessment. But I do see mm -hmm. where, you know, different personality types and how they react to this experience and how it unfolds, different things happen, and you have to take all that into account. So for me, in this particular case with this story, there's not enough information for me to draw any kind of conclusion. And that's my, that's my final assessment. I totally get that. All right, so what do you think, man? Some monster out there knows something. Maybe that monster is you. Okay, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's going to wrap up our show on the Enfield Monster. Remember, we're dark for two weeks due to natural breaks in our annual calendar, but we'll be back on May 14th with a brand new show. Meanwhile, visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to access our exclusive junk drawer show that runs every week the main show is dark. Yes, including the extra dark week coming up. Between the junk drawer and the main show, you can hear Astonishing Legends year-round. The junk drawer is a whole different animal. Salty, uncensored, disorganized, reckless, and wildly inappropriate. Ooh, I feel like your marketing terms might not be selling it the right way. Or is it perfect? Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Hi, I'm Aleko Bellavila. Hi, I'm Matt Bird. Hi, I'm Nathan Pluto. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening to Astonishing, Astonishing Legends. S-A-R-A-H-I-N-G. 
Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was designed by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request if you email astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.